What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and reported. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of these. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Look. Hey, man. Hey, Bill, how you doing? I'm doing good. Everything's good here. All right, well, this is Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm Willie Maynaguerra. And we have a really, really fascinating uh, case today of uh, Clarence Ray Allen. And uh, you knew him, so we're going to get into that. But before that, we have a few questions from our wonderful listeners that... Uh, I think only you and maybe a handful of other people can answer. So, uh, Keith from Bellflower, California, wants to know, uh, do a lot of prisoners skip leg day? I guess, you know, it seems like they work out a lot, but sometimes you see guys that, a lot of upper body, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good question. But, um, yeah, it depends on the prison you're at. If you're at a level four prison, and you're around a lot of killers, a lot of violence, um, usually you have a spotter or maybe two or three spotters with you. And when you're bench pressing, they stand in front of the bench. A lot of guys do skip legs because it takes so much weight to build the legs. And you're squatting five, 600 pounds. You don't want that on your back with a, when a riot jumps off. You know what I mean? It's, it's just not the best thing in the world because you're very vulnerable. Um, but... So it's kind of funny because I have a story about that because, um, look, I, I was a, it's not a secret. I used to be a fighter. I'm, I'm the former Hospital middleweight champion, and I fought before the MAA became the AA. It was just basically prize fighting. There was no weight classes. It didn't matter if you were 15 or 30. You fought the next guy in line, and the, the reply was always, hey, in a dark alley, you're not going to tell the guy to lose some weight to fight you because you're a different class. You know, I never wanted to really overdevelop my legs because you can't move that fast. You can't kick. You can't do a lot of things in the martial arts. And one guy actually asked me a question. He's like, hey, man, you know, your upper body's really developed, man, but uh, your legs aren't that huge or big compared with your upper torso. And I looked at him with probably my, the craziest look in my face, and I told him, what the fuck do I need legs for? I'm not going to run from nobody. <laughs> <laughs> and he just stood there and looked at me, and I guess that answered his question. In other words, don't ask a stupid question unless you want a stupid answer. Yeah, that's not the answer I would want to hear. I, I don't think I'd have a, a slick comeback for that one. I think I'd just kind of slink away at that point. Right? <laughs> so that's the answer to that question. A lot of guys skip legs because you don't want a lot of weight on your back when people are, you know, there's a riot going on or something because you could end up dead. Interesting. Um, Maria in Billings, Montana asks, uh, 
this is actually a good question. Um, how do how does like a terrorist, like a domestic terrorist type of person, rank in the hierarchy of convicts and prisoners? Obviously, rapists, child molester guys are are personas non grata. Um, but I'm thinking like a Saran Saran type of guy who assassinated Bobby Kennedy, or or you know maybe a known terrorist like the the Boston bomber terrorist guy, how would those guys fare in prison? Are prisoners patriotic? Yeah, um, that's actually a very good question, and thank you for that question. Uh, You know, that's interesting because those guys normally go to protective custody immediately. And the reason being is because it really depends on what race they are, too. Um, When it comes to domestic terrorism, although prisoners are not those stand-up law enforcement type people, they are in some ways very patriotic. And they look at those type of criminals or whatever you want, terrorists, as someone that has betrayed the country. And they take offense to that. So the short end of it is that if the Boston bombers were on the main line here on death row, uh, they would probably wish to be executed and what's going to happen to them on the yards because those type of guys, in this setting at least, I can only speak for St. Quentin and East Block, they probably wouldn't last very long because of what they did. They, Their target was just anybody, women, men, children, and that's a big problem. Oh, that makes, yeah, I didn't think about it that way because, yeah, they are injuring anyone indiscriminately women and children i mean i was thinking about it kind of like a lot of these guys in prison i mean yourself to a degree have been kind of disenfranchised so i would think maybe you know not the most flag-waving type of people but yeah that makes sense yeah and it's it's just one of those things that there is a, a warped or twisted sense of patriotism there here and as well as a code of of conduct and you have to understand it but i guess that's the answer to the question it's very hard to tell but there's a lot of different factors uh race um who are the people that are injured what were the guy's motives there's a lot of things to take into it but in the cases that you spoke of um i would bet money that those guys wouldn't last very long and they would be on the bottom of the totem pole in terms of the hierarchy of convicts yeah yeah that's very interesting thank you for the questions we appreciate it don't forget to follow us on facebook death row diaries instagram death row diaries and patreon death row diaries we'll have more information on that uh coming soon so clarence ray allen this is the last person uh who's been executed at san quentin um and this guy, I think the only way I could describe this guy is he is a gangster. Uh, he's a um, Native American man, moved to California and set up uh, essentially a, a criminal ring and uh, was sentenced to death without ever uh, being convicted of killing anyone himself. But he, he instructed his uh, followers to do it, right? Yeah, uh, this this guy is definitely interesting, and and I I want to inform the audience right now that 
uh, you're going to hear a couple names being mentioned that we speak about this guy and, and who he was associated with. At the end, I'm going to return because this guy was also involved in, there's a connection between him and another person on death row who was accused of a crime. And now there's evidence to believe that maybe Clarence Ray Allen was behind those murders as well. So it's all very interesting. And so, yeah, let's just get into this right away. Yeah. Um, so we start, we're in Fresno. Uh, he, he is a, a native American from Oklahoma. I guess he was ambitious, moved to Fresno and he's, you know, the interesting thing you often talk about, you know, age and when your cortex is forming, this guy is, is kind of nearing middle age as, as what we're going to talk about happens. He, he had been a career criminal, a successful one for, for quite some time at, by this point. I mean, he was established. He had a more or less a mansion, you know, a, a nice house, a family and, uh, grown children who he enlisted into his criminal enterprise. So not, not typical as far as the kind of path we've been talking about with some of these other guys, right? Yeah. This, this guy is completely different. He's kind of a hybrid. He, from the outside, it looks like, you know, good old American success story. He has a business. He runs a, a security business. Um, he, as you said, he, met, he, he lives in Fresno. He lives in, has a beautiful home. Uh, he has grown children. He's already in his 40s, and he is a basically a career criminal who has done things kind of on the outskirts of crime. But as we'll learn, he was actually right in the forefront. And, um, and that's where this really begins. This guy in, uh, in the early 70s, uh, living in Fresno, decides that he wants to burglarize a, a market, a supermarket. It's called Franz Markets. And he plans everything really detailed. He... Um, he basically knows the people, the victim, and the victim is Ray and friend. And I know I'm going to screw this last thing up, so please bear with me on this. Shitowitz uh, or Shitowitz? Uh, I was going to say Shitowitz. Shitowitz, maybe. Yeah, Shitowitz. But he um, he knows these people. He's an acquaintance of them, and he knows that they own this market. This is kind of the interesting part because he, well, whole thing's interesting, but he involves his first, his son. It's this whole elaborate plan. So he invites the son of the owners of the market to his home. And while he's at the home, his name is Brian, he's at the home swimming. Alan, Clarence Ray Allen, get someone to steal the keys that he has in his pockets that open the markets. And then he gets his son's girlfriend to go out with this guy, Brian, to kind of like get him away from the markets so he can be burglarized. And it's just really crazy that this guy gets everybody involved, he, that he is personally his, his son, obviously, his son's girlfriend, and then 
the people from his security business. So basically, when the kids are out, to, you know, on their dates, um, and by the name, the name of the young lady is Mary Sue Kitts. She takes Brian out on a date, or Brian takes her on a date, and Alan gets his son Roger, a guy named Ed Savala, Carl Mayfield, and Charles Jones. And Mayfield and Jones work for Alan in a security business, and they're part of this organized crime ring that does burglaries. So as I said, he looks like a complete legitimate businessman, but on the side, he runs this criminal organization. And so they end up breaking into the market. They steal like $500 cash, but what he really wanted was $10,000 in money orders. And remember, this is the 1970s, like 72, 73. That's quite a bit of money. And um, so the, 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 the burglary takes place. They get away with it. But it doesn't take very long for the young lady, Mary Sue Kitts, to get a conscience about this. She doesn't feel good about it. She knows what's happened. And she tells Brian, who is, of course, the son and the, the, the kid that she went out with. Um, he's not a kid, a young man that she went out with. And tells him about the involvement, who's, who broke into the place, how they did it, and that Alan planned the whole thing out. So right away, he gets his information. Brian confronts Ray Allen's son, Roger, and tells him he knows everything. And of course, uh, Roger runs to his father, who is Clarence Allen, and tells him what's going on. And things go really bad quickly from there because, and this is like straight out of The Godfather. This guy, Ray Allen, calls a meeting at his home. He He calls Carl Mayfield, Charles Jones, and I want the audience to remember this name, Eugene Lee Farrell. He calls them all over to the house. They're all employed by Alan as the security guards. And he tells them that Mary Sue Kitt is a snitch and that she has to be killed. So in Godfather fashion, they take a vote and a vote's called to kill her. And because they are supposedly afraid of this guy, Alan, because he's previously told everybody that he is the head of an organization, he's a mafia hitman, and he keeps in his safe newspaper articles about a man and a woman who were murdered in Nevada, and he tells all these guys, this is what happens to people when I want them dead. And let's pick up where um, when we come back. Yeah, so he's got this crew of guys, Lee Furrow, who's I don't think super bright, but but kind of his one of his muscle. Um, is there a cult leader aspect to this, or um, how how is he? He's older than all these guys. Do they just think he's cool because he carries a machine gun around, or <laughs> how has he uh, got these guys under his thumb like this? Yeah, it's, you know, he's the boss. He owns the company, the, the security guard business. He's older than all of them by at least 20, 25 years. Um, you know, it's, I think it's, it's that whole thing of giving people stories. You know, hey, 
I've done this, I'm a hitman, the mafia's behind me. All these things that he's kind of weaving into the, some of it true, some of it not so true, but he's weaving this this kind of web of, of truth and half lies and and he's got these guys impressed. And of course, he also pays their, their salary. And prior to this incident, remember, they're, they are running a criminal organization or enterprise and doing high-end burglaries. And obviously, he's the one scoping everything out. He's the, the, the brains behind it. So yeah, he's kind of the, the guy calling the shots and these guys are following him around. I mean, why they're following him around, I, I don't know the answer to that question because I personally know this guy. And I never throughout my 30, almost 30 years of knowing this guy, well, it wasn't that much, like a quarter of a century because he, he was executed in 2006. Um, did I ever see or feel this guy could ever manipulate me or did he have any any interest in my life. He was just very quiet. He just tried to get along, and which is kind of a contrast from what you read and what you see is going on. Right, because as you're going to explain now, I mean, he's he's ordering hits, but he's he's uh, he's badgering them. I mean, he's he's really intimidating them almost into carrying out his wishes, right? Yeah, and like I said, once they make the decision that this young lady has to die, Alan then orders Lee Farrow to kill her. But again, this guy isn't, I mean, he's not the most um, efficient killer in the world because he fails his first time, and his first attempt was to try and kill her with cyanide pills. I don't know what movie he was watching, but this was the grand plan. Yeah, they're at a they're at a party, and he has these cyanide pills, and he's I don't know if you read this part, but he's telling her like, "Hey, we're all gonna get high and trip on these pills," you know, and uh, she's like, "I don't want any," uh, and she said, "You know, I like to drink wine when I'm taking pills, and you guys don't have any wine." I figured he would have gone and bought wine, but anyway, he's trying to peer pressure her <laughs> into taking these drugs, and she just. She doesn't want to do it. So their plan is stymied right there. Yeah. And of course, then, you know, Alan's asking what's going on. Is she dead? And according to Pharaoh, he tells Alan, well, yeah, I'm at this very moment strangling her. <laughs> so he obviously kills her. And then he he throws her body in, in the free and current canal and she's never found. There is no trace of it to this date. There has been no body found. So everything seems to die down for a minute. Uh, and then lo and behold, this guy, Lee Farrell, he's arrested later on. This is several, a couple years later, he's, he's arrested and he confesses without a body or without even them knowing it's him that he, you know, he confesses to the murder of this young lady and he's put on trial because he confessed to it. He's convicted and he's sentenced to second degree murder. But in the same token, this is where all this thing begins to take place. Allen is also, Clarence Allen that is, he's also tried and convicted of first degree murder for, um, the killing of Mary Sue Kitts. And that's how this whole thing really starts. 
one homicide leads to the inception of many other ones. So we are now in Folsom Prison, and Ray Allen is doing time for a first-degree murder, and he runs across a guy named Billy Ray Hamilton. And just bear with me on this, because he is, again, doing what he normally does, and that is get somebody else to do some of his dirty work. So Allen has this plan, and he tells Billy Ray that he's going to get out, meaning Billy Ray, and he wants him to take care of something for him. Ray Allen wants Billy Ray to kill the witnesses against him in this first murder. So when he gets a new trial, there will be nobody there to testify against him and he'll be free. That's the plan. So, of course, Billy Ray Hamilton gets out of prison, out of Folsom Prison. And on September the 5th, 1980, he and his girlfriend, Connie Borbo, they go to Friends Market, the same market where they where uh, Ray Allen ordered these people to rip the place off. And who he finds there is Brian Schetzwitz, which is the gentleman um, who confronted Ray Allen and testified against him about the money that was taken from the the money that was taken from the market and who also testified that that girl Mary Sue Kate was the one that testified I told him about what was going on that Ray's involvement in the burglary so he finds this guy and he immediately pulls out a sawed off shotgun and murders him right there on the spot he also murders two other employees Josephine Rocha, 17, Douglas White, 18, and he wounds another young man named Joe Rios. Now, the market is situated right next to a house, and a man by the name of Jack Abbott hears the shots. He comes over immediately. He's armed as well, and he and Hamilton have a shootout. Um, They're both hit. They're both injured, and... Billy Ray gets away. He he gets in the car, he leaves. And two weeks later, here he is again trying to rob another store. But he gets caught. And you're not gonna believe this guy has in his right pocket the names, the addresses of all the people he's supposed to hit for Ray Allen. Yeah. Can you believe that? Well, yeah, I kind of can because Ray Allen convinced this guy, lied to him, basically. I don't know if he ever planned on paying him, but he convinced him to pull off all these murders for a fairly paltry amount of money. Um, So, yeah, I don't know if he's playing with a full deck because I, I I just don't. I don't know how someone, why, why not do your own murders if that's what you want to do? You know, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so he's an idiot. Yeah, well, so, so the list also has Brian, uh, who was murdered 
at the markets in his pocket as well. So they connect him right away. It doesn't take a jury long to convict him of three counts of murder, one count of attempted robbery, and two counts of assault with a deadly weapon for the other people he shot at the markets. And of course, the jury comes back with death. So in 1980, the Attorney General in California files charges against Ray Allen. And those charges include murder for hire, multiple murder with special circumstances, and, and, and killing a witness who is uh, going to be testifying against him. And, you know, and, and he uses a whole litany and orchestra of violent robberies that Allen's been a part of. And he brings in six prior felony convictions. And really, he just paints a picture of a kind of a godfather type of guy who, you know, orders people to do hits and people do them for whatever reason. And sure enough, the jury finds him guilty on all charges. On December the 2nd, 1982, Ray Allen arrives on death row along with Billy Ray Hamilton. And they're both here together. So is so, is is Alan the first person to kind of almost put someone else on death row with them? I mean, because he didn't pull any triggers. It, he must be the first guy to kind of convince someone to to do something to get put on death row while he's also on death row. I would think one of the first. Well. Um, he may have been because he, he got here very early. Being here in 1982 was fairly early. The, the death penalty had only been instilled in California for about four or four and a half years at that time. So, yeah, you're probably right. But there has been other cases um, where a particular guy orders other guys to make hits and they convict those guys as well as the guy who said, go ahead and do it, as kind of the, kind of the guy that gives orders to murders. Um, and he ended up on death row. And prior to this, of course, we all know about Charles Manson. Charles Manson was convicted of all the murders that his family did, and he never killed anybody. He basically suggested or told these people to go kill these bunch of people, and they did exactly that. So uh, an earlier case would be Charles Manson. Yeah. Um, and I just I want to get this out of the way real quick before we <clears throat> continue. Uh just another example of the kind of guy Alan is and the kind of power that he has is when, so he's in the county jail, uh, I guess awaiting trial prior to be, uh, being uh, sent to, to death row. And he decides for whatever reason to vote on a death penalty for a certain inmate um, and gets these other inmates to attack him with, they pour two gallons of boiling water on him and they tie him to, to the bars of the cell, beat him, shoot him with a zip gun, which I guess is a, a improvised firearm, and throw razor blades at him. Uh, so they they tortured a guy, uh, to, I guess to death or near death. So he's uh, he, he may be charismatic, I guess, to, to certain people, but he's a pretty scary guy to me. You're right. Look, I sometimes um, brush these guys off as clowns because I have been here any 
with him, and he's not a physical threat. He's not someone like me. And he looks, he acts. I mean, look, I, I want to be politically correct here, so I don't want to say something that's going to offend anybody. But I have a hard time keeping my mouth shut when it comes to this stuff. Look, Ray Allen, for lack of a better word, and the situation here, he's just a pussy, man. I mean, he wasn't going to hurt anybody here. But he, but he does it, and he orders other people to do it. kind of shows the kind of guy that he is. He can convince people, but he's not going to do it himself. But they tie this guy to the bars, do hot water on all stuff. That's a lot of work. Why not just, you know, they're going to kill him. Why not stab him? So it just, it seems like he, he, he gets amateurs to do his jobs for him or his bidding for him. So is he kind of scary? Yeah, the normal human being? Yeah. But in the world of convicts and prison and where there's a, a, a true hierarchy of, of convicts, Ray Allen would be at the very bottom because he's just not, he's not going to manipulate real convicts or real criminals or do anything. These guys are pretty much followers and pansies. And he got them to do these things. But it doesn't make him not dangerous because obviously he killed a bunch of people. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. All right, Matt, I'm back. All right, so he gets to death row and there's a really interesting sidebar in his appeals process, something that um, involving a guy that you actually know as well. Is that right? Do you want to get into that? Yeah, well, I wanted to definitely get into that because all of the stuff that we're going to talk about happens after this guy dies, and meaning after Ray Allen's executed. Um, and I just wanted to say that while he was in the row, I was in the same ER with him for several years. And when he was executed, I was actually on the same ER with him. And by that time, he's in a wheelchair. You know, he's embraced um, his... Native American um, heritage, and look, and this guy, he's not one of those guys who, you know, just fake being, you know, Native American. His mother is documented, she's, she's part Chacao, I think, I, I'm not even sure how to pronounce his name, C-H-O-C-T-A-W. Chacao, So yeah. she is, she, she is obviously Native American, his father also is part Cherokee. So both these are very documented. It wasn't like this guy just decided to do it, but he began to wear the band, the beads, the medicine bags. I don't know how much he believed it, or I, I never had those kind of conversations with him. However, I did have a number of conversations with him while he sat in the yard. He never worked out. He never did anything. He was kind of an older guy. Now, the other side of this thing is his crime partner, Billy Ray Hamilton. Now, I knew Billy Ray very well as, uh, as well as uh, Alan. Billy Ray spent most of his time while on death row in the hole for stabbings, uh, assaults, assaults on staff, uh, a number of weapons charges. This guy was very active. Um, and to say that Ray Allen was scary from normal standpoints or point of view, you'd be correct. But Billy Ray was the convict of the two. He was the one that is physically was a threat that his his aka was country and i don't know that you know because he was dumb as country folk i don't know again i'm trying to be politically correct here but he was i mean i mean i'm not sure if, if i would call him scary i mean we were in the same yard together he lived way very close to me i never found him to be threatening in any way but 
he did stab a lot of people on the road. He was very active, and he really didn't care. And he put a couple guys very close to the grave after stabbing him several times. Sounds pretty scary to me. Yeah, I mean, he's a big guy. I mean, he wasn't little. He's, you know, 6'2", um, a good 230 pounds. He ended up he ended up dying on death row of cancer. Um, so he was never executed. But Ray Allen lived on, and as I said, he didn't get into any trouble with on, on the row. As long as I knew Ray, um, Ray Allen, he was quiet, very um, uh, unassuming, didn't push anybody around, didn't try to manipulate anybody. He basically disappeared on the yard because no one cared who he was. And nobody really gave a damn because he, he meant nothing to anybody. He was just kind of a neutral, you know, guy that no one would really go out of their way to try and harm. Um, and he wasn't bothering anyone, so he just kind of existed. Exactly. And that happens to a lot of guys here. Guys are pretty scary on the streets or whatever, coming here, and they see that they're in a pond with a bunch of sharks. And they stay the hell out of the water. That's basically what it is. So the... He's finally, his appeals run out. His, uh, his attorneys plead that he's not a threat to society anymore. He's old, he's, he's feeble, he has Alzheimer's and all this stuff. Was basically thrown out by the courts. They didn't care about it. The court's opinion from the Ninth Circuit was basically, hey, this is a guy who, while in prison, orders the murders of uh, three other individuals. He There's attempted murders done on his part. He has proven to be extremely dangerous, even from behind prison bars, which society put him hoping to be safe from him, and yet he pulls this off. So the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the California Supreme Court, all shot him down, and his appeals ran out. And he was ultimately just executed. He, he had an eagle feather on his chest, a medicine bag around his neck. He had a beaded headband. And they executed him at 12.08 a.m. Um, he had his last meal. Do you know what it was? Uh, yep. He had a buffalo steak and fry bread. Those are, you know, Native American dishes. A bucket of KFC white meat chicken. That is not a traditional dish. Sugar-free pecan <laughs> pie. Uh, I'm assuming he was diabetic. At that point, I would just go for the... The sugar, you know, why not live a little? Um, sugar-free ice cream and some milk. And, uh, yeah, and did you see his last words? Yeah, I, I, I read that somewhere. It was like, okay, which means uh, it's a good day to die or some shit like that. Yeah, there's, I guess it's a Lakota native word meaning hurry. Uh, that uh, Crazy Horse kind of used as a battle cry. So uh, I guess he was being kind of flippant about it, acting like he didn't care. Or maybe he didn't. I don't know. Maybe he was so debilitated at that point, he was ready to go. Um, And, uh, yeah, Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger was the governor at that point, um, whose father was in the Nazi party, I always like to point out. And he, uh, he cited a poem that that Alan wrote, I guess, glorifying his own crimes 
and I tried to find the whole poem, but I couldn't. But I think it's a limerick based on the last two lines is a quote. We rob and steal for those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. Um, yeah, I don't know. You're a dork if you write limericks about your crimes. Uh, so, yeah, so he's gone. There were 250 um, protesters outside. They had a candlelight vigil. Um, I'm assuming since so many people by this point had been executed, it wasn't, uh, you know, a, a totally big deal for the prisoners. Yeah, I mean... Look, I know it sounds kind of cold, but most of the guys here, uh, he died on January the 17th. He was 76 years old, the second oldest guy to be executed. Um, the oldest guy was a guy named John Nixon in 1977. No relationship to President Nixon, by the way. And um, look, it's close to the Super Bowl at that time or somewhere in that neighborhood. There's not a lot of guys in the really give a damn. They're, they're watching a game. They're watching whatever. They have their own lives. They have their own problems. They have pending executions close to them. They don't really care. So, yeah, there's not a whole lot of thing. I remember that day clearly because the following morning at 6 a.m., they got a loudspeaker and they said, you know, yard release. Everybody go to yard and prepare your things. And we went out to yard and no one basically cared. Right. So he's gone. And then, interestingly, after he's executed as you had sort of hinted at, there's kind of a second life to this thing, right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really weird because I know both all these guys involved in this thing and I just sit back and it's kind of like a developing story and it, it just gets better with this one. So Ray Allen is, after Clarence Ray Allen, he is obviously the last person put to death. He's number 13. Okay, so if you guys backtrack a little bit, the 11th person that was executed was Beardsley. And we spoke about him. You know, we talked about his case and what happened. But Beardsley kind of got put into that place because another individual was taken into the gas chamber. He was supposed to be number 11. And his name is Kevin Cooper. Now, Kevin Cooper was taken to the gas chamber. He was strapped down. I mean, they did a number on this guy. And, of course, at the last minute... He's giving a reprieve and a stay of execution. And I, mean, I saw Kevin before he went up there. Look, he was scared. And when he came back, it really affected him deeply. I mean, he was, it took him a while for the shock of being strapped down to a, you know, to be executed almost. The needle was about to be put in his arm. It's scary stuff. Mm -hmm. So, but this case just gets really interesting at that point because. You know this, Matt. I, look, a lot of guys here don't get the best lawyers in the world. They don't have the money for it. And Kevin is one of those guys that didn't have the money for it. They almost executed him. And then Clarence dies less than a year and a half later. And then things start developing. And here's what happens. So here, here's the second part of the story gonna, you guys are going to find very interesting. Kevin Cooper was convicted of killing uh, Douglas and Peggy Ryan, their 10-year-old um, daughter, the 11-year-old neighbor, and their small child, a 10-year-old little boy, was also nearly 
decapitated, stabbed, but he survived. He's a black uh, guy, which is usually relevant in these types of conversations, I think. Right. Kevin Cooper is an African-American, and he was doing time at Chino Prison for some small burglary or something like that. Not to say it's small, but it wasn't serious like murder. And he escapes. So Kevin escapes, and he's in the neighborhood where the Ryan house is. And lo and behold, this family's murdered, and Evan Cooper is not only accused, but he's convicted. He's set to death for bro. He's actually lives four cells from me right now. I actually spoke to him today. And I told him that I was going to be mentioned this today. And, um, you know, he's, he's fighting for his life, but now he has a very good team. Including, including, may I say, um, a gentleman who is the former head of the FBI. Uh, I believe his name is Baker, and he is now investigating the case. So here's where Ray Allen comes into this. So Ray Allen used to raise Arabian horses. The Ryan family also raised these horses, and Ray Allen had a, a business transaction with them that went sour. So sour that the Ryan family repossessed this Arabian horse that Allen paid for, and there's a lot of bitter blood between the two of them. Okay. So, you know, Ray's, uh, Ray Allen's in prison. Um, People say, okay, there's no way he could have called a hit from prison. Well, we know that that's true. He, he has called hits from prison. He did it in Folsom, and he did it in the county jail. So it turns out that, and remember I mentioned the name, and I asked you guys to remember, Lee Farrell. Lee Farrell obviously killed Mary Sue Kitts for Ray Allen. A year prior to the June 4th, 1983 murders of the, of the family, the Ryan family, the four people there, the two children plus the two uh, adults and the attempted murder of the small child, uh, Joshua Ryan. Lee Farrell gets out of prison. He's out of prison. Ray Allen has a, a beef with these people. Lee Farrell already killed for Ray Allen. And here's the interesting part. Four different witnesses, including Lee Farrell's girlfriend, says, and I quote, he did it. He told me he did it. The night that the Ryan family was murdered, he came into the house in a coverall drenched in blood. And in his little toolkit, he kept an ice pick and an axe. So you ask, how were the, the family killed? They were... They were killed by axe, a knife, and what looks like the puncture wounds of an ice pick, according to the coroner. So, <laughs> and miraculously, these overalls disappear. So there's a lot of interest now in this guy, Lee Farrell, because was he doing uh, Ray Allen's bidding in 1983? It's possible. I'll be back. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. 
All right, man, I'm back. Yeah, so we know that he brags pretty often about all the murders that he's responsible for, yet we don't really have a, a body count. So, you know, the, the, pretty much everyone suspects that he was involved in this, right? Yeah, very interesting. The, the young boy that was at the house at the time, uh, his first um, interview, and of course, remember, this is a small child. He's just gone through the, the trauma of, you know, his throat, his throat being slashed, stabbed. He was left for dead. But his first interview, he said, three white guys did it. And, um, you know, Kevin Cooper is African-American. He's not one of those light African-Americans. He's very prominently dark. And, um, yeah, it's just very interesting. At least it gives you pause. You know, I'm not saying that this is... We know exactly what happened that night. I think, if you'd like, I'd, I'd like to um, to propose that you and I dive deeper into this case, the, the Ryan case, the murders, as well as the Kevin Cooper case, and what kind of connection maybe Ray Allen has to this case. Yeah, I think we should. I, I want to learn more about it, because <clears throat> I'm reading that in 2018 that uh, Governor Jerry Brown at that point ordered DNA testing and the results are still pending. So I don't know what that means, but uh, it seems like if they have Pharaoh's DNA and they have Cooper's DNA, um, the this should be able to be solved, I would think, just kind of from a bird's eye view. So yeah, we should, we should uh, delve into that next time. The governor guessed Gavin Newsom has signed an executive order calling for an independent investigation into the Kevin uh, Cooper case. And they brought in a law firm, Morrison and Forster, to do the independent investigation because, honestly, they just don't trust what law enforcement is saying on this case. There's a lot to this case that we should definitely get into. And uh, anyway, I mean, you and I... Hold on And as I said before, you and I are not taking positions of innocence or guilt on here. Well, in some cases we are because the guy admitted to what he did. But in this case, uh, Kevin Cooper has uh, always maintained that he is completely innocent of any of these crimes. Uh, and he's been on death row for about 36 years. And, um, you know, he's gone through a lot of things. And, it, and you and I should take a look at it and let the... the the audience decide on what they think and what their position is on this case and the evidence that's going to be presented on the next episode. Yeah, we certainly will. Because I mean, we know that, you know, Alan and, and this Lee Farrow guy, he's capable of murder. He he was strangling uh, this Mary Sue Kitts and then stopped strangling her to answer his phone where Ray Allen told him to keep strangling her so he he kind of has a disconnect on this stuff they never found uh her body although it presumably is was in the uh the reservoir somewhere um but uh yeah we'll definitely get into it because i mean this clarence ray allen just i guess to close on him he's just so depraved and i'm never all that surprised when uh men are but it, it still shocks me when when women are and, and you know uh 
call me sexist or whatever, but when they were trying to get this 17-year-old girl to take these cyanide pills, Clarence Ray Allen's, you know, common-law wife was against it, not because she minded them killing the 17-year-old girl. She just didn't want them to do it and ruin her party. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty, yeah, that, that shows the kind of conscience or these, these social path uh, mind frame that these people have. Yeah, so we'll get into uh, Kevin Cooper next time. Is there anything you want to close with on uh, Mr. Clarence Ray Allen? No, it's just uh, we're going to learn a whole lot more about him and the possibilities that he's involved in this. And, you know, the one question I think that people should have on their minds, or at least that one thing, is that when you go through a jury trial, if if there is reasonable doubts that the person that they're accusing of this crime is innocent, then of course the vote is not guilty. And with this, um, this feral character, Alan, and his ties to this family, and just the way everything happened, there seems to be at least the pause for consideration of reasonable doubt. Unfortunately for Mr. Cooper, unfortunately for Mr. Cooper, none of evidence that he knows. Remember, he was on the same yard with Ray Allen. He never knew. He never knew that Ray Allen had a connection to this murder until long after he's dead that the new law firm that begins to represent Mr. Cooper finds this out. Can you imagine? You're on the yard with a guy who possibly could have done the murders you're accused of. You've been in prison for a quarter of a century. I don't know about you, but if I was innocent and there's a guy in the yard and there's a very good indication that he did it, and I know in my heart, hey, I didn't do it. I wasn't there. You best believe that he and I are going to have a conversation, a very thorough conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in closing, how – so you encountered Charles Manson briefly, right, in San Quentin, and him and Clarence Ray Allen have quite a bit in common. How would you compare them on a scale of uh, – charisma because i'm assuming that that's you know their uh, their biggest skill is charisma they're charismatic enough to get people to kill other people for them so how would you compare the two yeah i don't yeah that's a good question but I, I don't know how to answer it because i met charles manson the first thing i thought when i heard the name charles manson when i was a kid jesus i thought he was six foot five six foot six 270 pounds grew fangs at night and flew around like a bat at night when I met this guy, I was 23 years old. I was in the adjustment center in the AC, which is the uh, the hole. And when he walked up to me, the guy's barely five foot two. And the first thing I thought about was fucking clown. He has a swastika uh, tattooed into his forehead. I want to slap the taste out of his mouth. And that his crime that he killed uh, Miss Tate and she had a nine-month-old child uh, inside of her that wasn't born yet it just made it all the more clear to me that this guy was a piece of garbage uh, I don't know where the charisma came from maybe it was the ass that these people were taking or those followers that he had were a bunch of freaking morons I mean that's the only explanation I can have for that as far as Ray Allen's concerned 
I saw no evidence of charismatic appeal. He wasn't this tall, this tall, great-looking guy that had muscles everywhere and, and could talk the panties off of, uh, you know, a virgin. He wasn't that guy. I don't know how they did what they did. Maybe they turned it off while they were here. I, I don't know. But as I've mentioned before, neither one of those guys impressed me. I was never afraid of being around them. I thought of them as just a non-issue. By the way, Charles Manson, after he got close to me and said, and again, he's, he's fucking out of his mind. He's, he's, his exact words was, hey, brother, it's been a long time since we've seen each other. How have you been? And I looked at him with the weight that my eyes carry, and I told him in a very quiet tone, and I'll say this the way I said it, if you ever touch me again, I'll rip your fucking arm off and shove it down your throat. He stumbled away, and he never came back out the yard. So that's exactly how I did the, the kind of relationship I had with him, which was non-existent. I saw him once in the yard, and that's it. And as I said, he was a clown. Yeah, I'm sure these guys weren't actually all that charismatic. There's just a lot of desperate people out there. I mean... You know, if I have a party, my friends and I fight over who's going to, you know, run the playlist on the on the iPod. So no one I know is susceptible to uh, being controlled kind of period, but certainly not to the point of uh, killing women and whatnot. But uh, I guess there's just two very different types of people in the world. There are. And of course, we've we've discussed them. And, uh, but yeah, people should not be impressed by Charles Manson or um, Ray Allen in any way, shape, or form. Take it for someone who's met them both. And of course, my relationship with Charles Manson was very uh, limited, but I did know Ray Allen very well. I spent years in the same yard with them, and there's nothing impressive about the guy. And we talked, uh, but there was no, uh, I wasn't in awe of his skills as a manipulator. Or this charismatic guy. I never thought of him that way. He was a guy in a wheelchair. That was it. Yeah, it's tough to be, you know, dying of diabetes and and uh, come off as as cool when you're eating sugar free pie. Um, so we're gonna follow up with Cooper <laughs> on uh, on our next episode with Kevin Cooper. And uh, yeah, so we'll get into that next time. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. And these are the Death Row Diaries.